Sports Business Radio launched in 2004. Brian Berger has interviewed the biggest names in sports and business. Let's step into the Sports Business Radio vault and look back on some of our favorite conversations. This week, we look back on conversations with MLB MVP, the kid, Ken Griffey Jr., 22 seasons MLB vet and Cy Young winner, John Smoltz, and 19 seasons MLB vet and Cy Young winner, CC Sabathia. Now, enter the Sports Business Radio Vault. My guest is Ken Griffey Jr., Baseball Hall of Famer, certainly the greatest player I've ever seen during my lifetime, 630 career home runs, 13-time All-Star, 1997 AL MVP, 10-time Gold Glove winner. You can find him on Instagram at the Real Ken Griffey Jr. He's also an investor and partner with Players TV, joining the likes of Chris Paul and Carmelo Anthony. You can find Players TV online at playerstv.co. Ken, thanks so much for joining me on Sports Business Radio. How are you? Fine. I'm good. How about you? I'm doing great. I really appreciate you making the time. I want to start out... We've got a very close mutual friend, kind of the OG at Nike, Lynn Merritt. He's worked with you, LeBron James, Bo Jackson, Scottie Pippen. And I know you've had a very special relationship with Nike over the course of your career. But tell me about that first meeting with Lynn. How old were you and and how did you guys uh, meet for the first time? Um, He was doing his due diligence about finding the the baseball player that was – going to take Nike to an, an, another level in, as far as baseball wise. And so he visited uh, Frank Thomas, David Justice, and a couple other guys and got to me and, um, and ended up choosing me. Uh, he says it's because of my wife. <laughs> I just said, you know, uh, but I say differently. Um, but, uh, you know, over the years, um, you know, him being uh, such a big influence on my life on and off the field, um, having a dad. But, you know, they always say that, you know, it, it takes a village to raise a child. Uh, he's part of that village. Um, you know, the the way that he expresses things, the way he says things. Um, now, we may not agree on everything all the time, <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, you know, they are, uh, the merits are, uh, the godparents to, to my kids. Um, and you know, it, it's a relationship, um, that even though it, it started out as business has grown to be much, much more, um, still call each other trying to figure out what are we doing? Uh, how's everybody doing, you know, especially in the last three and a half months, what's been going on. Uh, you know, in, in the country and, and with the country. So we've uh, <clears throat> had a, a lot of time to, to sit back and, and reminisce and he'll, he'll tell stories that I think he fabricated. A lot. <laughs> <laughs> Cause uh, uh, my dad fabricates some stories now, but uh, he's, he's one of the guys that, like I said, he, he's um when he's on your team, he's on your team and, and it, it's tough to, to, to get him off. And, uh, you know, I really appreciate everything that he's done for, for me and also my family. Yeah. He keeps it real too, doesn't he? 
Yeah, sometimes that's the problem. Sometimes, <laughs> you, know, you don't want to hear that, uh, you know, especially early on in my career, you know, uh, a little stubborn, you know, being a 19-year-old, 20-year-old, you know, 19, 20, 21, you're like, this is the way baseball works. And him coming from a different sport, uh, you know, football and, and now basketball, you know, having the, the learning curve of how baseball works. Cause he's like, Hey, we're doing this. And I go, we can't do that just yet. Uh, but you know, I, I did as much as I could. I mean, you know, the breaking of probably, okay. All the rules in baseball, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the mock turtle neck with the Nike logo, uh, the way that I, you know, put my number, how big my number was. Um, you know, I just kept saying, I want it bigger, bigger, bigger. And, you know, and they took some, some shots over the years, not from so much from major league baseball, but from, uh, other companies that were like, well, how come Ken Griffey Jr. can do it? And they were like, Hey, we don't have nothing to do with that. He just keep telling us. What but, uh, you know, like I said, he's, he's one of those guys that's, that's been good for, for me, my family, and and really, you know, push the envelope uh, at Nike as far as what athletes want and need. Mm-hmm. The birth of the Swingman brand. I mean, it's become one of the most successful brands that Nike's ever had. I love the logo that's part of your line, but. You know, I've talked to athletes over the years, and some of them are real involved with their product and what it looks like and the design, and they want to be involved from A to Z with the process. Other people are like, well, just show me the finished product. Where were you in that spectrum? Um, I want to I wanna see from – I want to go from start. Mm-hmm. Um, because you can't make changes at the end. Right. Um, and I don't want to be that guy be like, yeah, I love the shoot, but – and then, you know – so we try to, you know, nip things in the bud. I mean, Tracy Teague has done a great job um, designing it. And I think that when they come to, they come to your house and they see what you have, how do you live? Um, they check out your cars, uh, look at your hobbies, and then they go back and they brainstorm uh, about, you know, what can we put in the shoe that reminds us of him so when designing the shoe it was like I, I have a lot of carbon fiber on my car that's one of the things uh about me is if you look at over the years there's all about four or five shoes that have carbon fiber in it and it's just the way i am um you know i want everything low profile and fast huh. so that's the way they design the shoe um even though i wanted a three-quarter they made it a low three quarter. Um, and so I was able to, to play, um, and felt comfortable in the shoe and never really had to change anything because I felt that they knew me so well that when it came back with something, it was going to be good. What was your favorite Griffey swingman product? Like I love the Nike Eric Griffey max one, the original. What about you? I, it's probably, Hard to pick, but is there one that one. stood out to you? One, yeah, yeah, and it's always you know it's it's always your your first. Um, even though my kids think that my second child is my favorite, uh, <laughs> which is my daughter. Right, <laughs> my boys are like, yeah, my boys are like, hey, we know which one's your favorite. 
she gets everything. I'm like, don't y'all get everything? Like, no, we don't get nothing. I'm like, okay. <laughs> That's very funny. I guess, I, I guess it's the words daddy, you know, that, that comes out of her mouth. And because my kids, hey, pops up and like, oh, you know, my boys. But uh, no, it's always the first. I mean, it is, you know, you just, there's so many things, you know, um, first car, first house, you know, uh, first day in the big leagues. I mean, you know, those days you, you remember for the rest of your life. Yeah. In 1999, Nike bestowed an honor on you that's really reserved for the most elite of an athlete. They gave you your own building on the campus at Nike World Headquarters. I've been to Nike many times because I'm based in Oregon. I've seen your building. My friends have told me about the day of that dedication and that I guess they had some high schoolers throwing you BP and you were just hitting bombs off the side of some of the Nike buildings there. What was that day like for you to get your own building at Nike World Headquarters? Uh, it, it was quite surreal. Um, you know, it's, 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 you hear about it and you're like, okay, but I really, am I really getting this? And, um, you know, and, and have the, the folks at Nike say that I'm worthy of having a building, uh, with all the athletes that they have under their umbrella. It's pretty special. Um, it's wild because when I got there, it was still not real. Uh, it got real, real quick when I started hitting balls off buildings. (laughs) But for the most part, that whole day I was like, I can't believe this is happening because you don't, uh, my thing is when people go out of their way to do something for you, it means a lot. Yeah. You know, and, and that goes, you know, from picking, um, from the all-star game that they go in there and take those little athletes and then they poke your name out, uh, to online saying, Hey, I want to see this guy play. Um, to you know at at the time they were doing gas station uh uh you could pick you pick them out pick the names while you were pumping gas i mean for some to me that that's special and i don't take those things lightly and for nike to say hey we want you to have your own building and this is going to be on the campus uh forever it's it means a lot yeah your Swingman brand. So again, I love the logo. Ken, I've always wanted to ask you this question. Most people agree, at least in my lifetime, I wasn't alive for Ted Williams or Willie Mays or anyone like that. You have the sweetest swing ever. Where is the origin of that swing? Is that something you were just born with and, and that's your natural swing? Or were there people that you grew up when you were playing baseball as a kid and you took a little bit of this and a little bit of that from their swing and then it became your swing? No, the only person that I wanted to be like was my dad. And so if you look at early on, um, I was hunched over like him, um, even though I'm a little taller, so I didn't, I didn't hunch as much as he did. Um, but... Uh, that's the only person I wanted to be like. And eventually, I think after year two or three, I stood up a little taller, just messing around in BP. And I started hitting the ball like 40 feet further. Hmm. And I was like, well, I'm going to just work on this one right here. <laughs> uh, 
but that was that was mainly it. Um, if you look at um, hitters, if you're hunched over, there are certain pitches that you can reach that when you're standing up, you can't reach. So you can go from Rod Carew, Pete Rose, um, how the, you know, even Tony Gwynn. And then if you look at guys who are more straight up, have a little bit more power. Um, and then there's those guys that are in between that have power and have plate coverage. Um, so I was like, one day, like I said, I stood up one day and was like, oh yeah, I'm hitting the ball 40 feet further to left field. I'm going to keep this one and just continue to work on it um, for the next, you know, 19 years. Yeah. Well, a, th- <laughs> a thing of beauty. And uh, I think something that most people agree on, it's, it's just, uh, you know, one of the greatest things in, in sports history. I, I want to talk to you a little bit about your investment in players TV. There's a lot of athletes now that are interested in creating their own content. And, you know, there's pieces of content that are important for them to have made. Uh, players TV, Chris Paul, Carmelo Anthony, Vernon Davis, others. You're the first baseball investor. What led you to want to invest and be a part of players TV? Well, you know, I, uh, I've been hit on throughout the years to do a reality TV show. And, and I kept saying no, because I wanted my kids to grow up as normal as possible. Mm. Um, what people have to understand is their normal may not be somebody else's normal. Right. And and vice versa. Um, I have three great kids who, um, give the shirt off their back. There's been plenty of times I'm like, you can't just give that away. That is yours. And they're like, yeah, but he needs it more. Mm. You know, he doesn't have this. And, and, uh, and, and when they start saying it like that, I'm like, all right. Um, you know, they, they all graduated from Dr. Phillips high school in Orlando, um, which is a predominantly, um, middle, lower class, um, public school. And, you know, the football team, you know, I tell, you know, I, I tell, when I talk to the kids, I said, your coaches have to beg, borrow, and steal to get the things that you have. And, you know, Coach Wells um, has done a great job of, of getting the things that he needs. He still needs some help. And so I sit there and I'm like, whatever you need. So, you know, some of the, these guys, you know, the whether it be feeding them um, because they don't have a budget for food, um, you know, and that, and that, that, you know, 150 sandwiches a day, you know, is tough. And so I try to help them out as much as possible. But the TV part is as they grew up now that they're, you know, my, my youngest um, is going to be a freshman in college. I can start doing things that I've always wanted to do to show a different side of, of, not only me, but other people. Um, what do we do in our family life? You know, that people never see, um, which is for me, you know, I like to, to go fishing. I like to go hunting. Um, you know, I fly a plane. So I do a lot of things. I scuba dive 
but people don't really get to see any of that because over the years I'm like, you know what? I, I'm going to see my kid play. I got to get here. I got to fly. Um, but our fishing part is absolutely one of the funniest things. Fishing and hunting are, are two of the biggest things uh, because I take my dad hunting. So it's two generations. So this year um, it's going to be three because Trey wants to go. So there'll be three generations of, of, of Griffey's going hunting. And I bring my uh, dad's best friend who basically he is my uncle and they are the two funniest people uh, um, because they don't back down to each other, but they're, they have to stay in the same room and, and I can hear them telling these, these fabricated stories. Uh, but it, it, it's great. It gives me a chance to, to hang out with my dad and, and see the relationship. You know, I want people to see the relationship that I have with my dad, even though, you know, my dad played baseball. It's a normal relationship. It, it's funny. He still tells me to this day, you know, what to do. And I start laughing because I'm like, that. I'm 50. I have kids of my own. He was like, yeah, but that's not how you do it. I'm like, <laughs> It's, and I'm like, it's a, the funniest thing because I'm like, um, you want to stop this because we're going to have some problems. <laughs> it's so true. Like parents still see us as kids, even when we're adults and we have kids of our own. It's the same thing with my family. They they must see us as like 11 years old forever because uh, yeah. it, <laughs> it's kind of how it works. Yeah, I have that problem <laughs> um, because, you know, my kids are 26, 24, 18. You know, and my daughter leave the house. I'm like, hey, where you going? And she's like, dad. I'm like, where you going? Uh, Trey leaves the house. I'm like, what time are you getting back? <laughs> uh, um, you know, but the, the toughest part, you know, during this pandemic is having a 17-year-old. And I said, you know, you went from spring break to senior skip day. That means from, from spring break to senior skip semester. Right. Because y'all missed the whole semester. And he started laughing. I was like, but it was tough trying to keep him, you know, in the house, keep him engaged. Uh, um, you know, we did a lot of board games and things like that. Um, played ping pong, pool. Um, you know, so the social distancing uh, for a 17-year-old was kind of tough. At the time, he was 17. Uh, but you know, I, I try to tell people cause all my friends are like, I can't, I can't stay in there. Go, can you imagine what, this is what a celebrity has to go through. Yeah. Not being trapped in the house, but not being able to go certain places and do certain things because is it worth it to go out? And, you know, for me, I was comfortable. I mean, everybody else was like, okay, I got to get out. I'm like, no, we're not going anywhere. Um, and then as they started, you know, easing up, uh, we were able to do things, but for the most part, it, it, it's, it was tough on, it's tough on everybody. Um, you know, I tell my wife that I was a essential worker cause I was the one going to go get the groceries and go get the mail. And then, and we had an assembly line, uh, you wipe everything off. One person wipes. The other one does this. Since I was the one who went and got everything, I would come in the house 
and then go directly take a shower and then come down and start with everybody else, start cooking with everybody else. Yeah. I think it's so great. I mean, I know how close you were or are with your dad and, you know, you grew up in the clubhouse with him and just hearing you talk about him. But I, I think it's wonderful that, you know, especially with Father's Day coming up, you're so close with your own kids and, and you're present because, you know, that's not really the case with uh, a lot of people in your line of work because you're on the road so much and you're traveling and they kind of need to be reintroduced to their family post-career. But the relationship you've built with your kids is, is really a strong one. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, that was one of the biggest things that uh, um, for me is you only play baseball for a certain amount of times, play sports for a certain amount of time. But I'm a dad. You know, I'm gonna be a dad longer than I play baseball, mm-hmm. and uh, so. But it, it, like I said, it's so funny because you know we do things, and I have my kids telling me what to do. And they're, like I said, they're 26 and 24. <laughs> uh, the 17 year old, I mean 18 year old, Tevin, uh, he hadn't got that privilege yet of being able to say things. But he'll look at me and go, "Dad, that's not what we do." Now, if I have a a a phone problem, a computer problem. That's the person I call. Look at. <laughs> He's your IT guy. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> but we we have these things. I mean, um, as far as family wise, we 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 really enjoy each other company. Um, you know, like if what's funny is if Melissa and I are leaving to go out to dinner, my kids are asking us. Why y'all didn't invite us? Hmm. So they want to be a part of everything. Um, am I the fun dad? Absolutely. Am I the disciplinarian? No. Because my, my mom was the disciplinarian. My dad was like, hey, let's, I got in trouble. Okay. So at, I'll give you a little story. At, at 15, I took my mom, oh, my dad's car, and I was going to pick up my friends. And my grandmother busted me right when I was leaving the driveway. <laughs> so this is Friday night. So my dad's in New York at the time. So I played the first game of the double hitter and I got a plane to catch the second half. So I get on the plane and I'm like, oh, my dad's going to kill me. My dad's going to kill me. My dad's going to kill me. Well, back then, you know, they could go to the gate. So I come off the plane. He's sitting on the other side of the aisle at another gate. And he just points at me and, points to the seat right next to him. So I walk over there. Now that little 30 uh, step walk might've been two miles. <laughs> in my eyes. So I sit down and he goes, Oh, I knew you was going to do this. I was just waiting. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh, so I know he can't, he can't really do nothing at the airport. So I'm good. So we uh, get in the car and I'm like, we're in the car and I'm like, Oh, he's going to kill me now. He didn't say nothing to me the whole time. And probably we were at LaGuardia and we were going to, uh, we lived in New Jersey at the time. So I was like, oh, we get in the house. My mom's there. I'm like, well, there's a 50-50 chance he ain't going to do nothing now. So he starts yelling at me. And then he, in the middle, he goes, go in the room. And I went, there it is. I'm done. So I go in a room and I come running back out because there's a brand new glove. It's a batting gloves for me. 
And he sticks me on the plane Sunday morning, and I play the second game of the double hitter. <laughs> so that, that, that's how much of a dis- now. My mom had different. She was like, "You should just ground him for life." But uh, he was he he understands. And, and as a male, having a young male in the house, you understand what happens. Like I tell my wife all the time, I understand what it's like to be a 15 to 19 year old male. I can't help you at on the female level. So the, her her emotions is you deal with that. Yeah. Uh, uh, so we understand our, our balance in, in our our house is I'll say something like, hey, that's enough. And, and she'll say, OK. And then the same thing, because I'll say something to Taryn and they'll go she go, hey, that's not how you address. That's not how you say something to a girl. And I'm like, well, I say it to the boys. Girls are different. I'm like, no, they're not. And so we, we had this thing that uh, how we talk to our kids, we may have to change it up because of their gender. <clears throat> now, your kids are very accomplished athletes as well. Uh, your sons play football and your daughter plays college basketball or played college basketball at University of yeah. Arizona. Uh, so, you know, your dad saw you come up and, and he taught you the ropes. How's your parenting style with them when it comes to sports? Um, I let the coaches coach. Um, I have, I've always had this, this, uh, this motto. Uh, if I'm paying, I have a say, but once I stop paying, I really don't have a say that Mm -hmm. is all up to you. So through little league and stuff like that, I have a say, you know, to the, with the coaches because I am paying. Once it got to high school and and college, I had no say. Um, and I left it at that. Um, in the years where my kids were in college, my two older ones, I have never gone to the head coach and had a conversation in his office. Now, Trey spent five years under Rich Rod, and I've never seen Rich Rod's office. Hmm. Um, I would sit in the stands. You know, I, I like to learn um, how coaches coach, and, and I'm intrigued by how, you know, the way that other sports work. Um, I was talking to um, Rob Turbin, uh, running back, used to be with the Seahawks. Right. And uh, we were talking a couple days ago, and he said, okay, tell me how spring training works. I said, now, you're talking about a rookie or a veteran? He goes, okay, let's talk about the rookie. I said, the rookie, you're there till if you're playing, you're there till 5 o'clock. He said, what happens if you're not playing as a rookie? You're still there at 5 o'clock. Right. <laughs> he said, okay, as a veteran, if you're not playing. I said, well, I take DP at 930. I'm in my car going home at 1030. He goes, say it again? I said, yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> we stretch it. And we stretch at 9. We start hitting at 9. We do PFT to 9.30. We start hitting at 10. I'm in the first group. And the first group, I go in and take a shower. And then I'm headed home at 10.30. He just like, nah. That. He goes, what about film? I said, what film? Yeah. He said, he goes, Y'all don't watch film? I said, yeah, we watch film on game day, uh, the picture that we're facing during the regular season. you know. But other than that, no, we ain't sitting there like y'all watching film. 
Right. And I just told him, I said, you know, football players don't retain information as much as baseball players do. <laughs> you start laughing. That's funny. One of the things yeah. I've, I've heard about you is that, so you love photography and that you would go shoot your kids' games from the sidelines and then that way you could kind of watch it in peace. No one would bother you and, and also you got to take some shots of them. I know you've shot some Monday Night Football. I know you were at Ichiro's last game in Tokyo. Where does that passion for photography come from and is it kind of allowed you to watch the game in a different way without people bothering you? Uh, well, I, I, I would, I would tease, um, you know, the, the people like the other parents, uh, when I would take a picture of them, but like, yeah, uh, NFL film started somewhere. They just didn't start at the NFL level. <laughs> and they, I go, which they probably did. But in my case, you know, it, learning the game and, and learning photographer, uh, photography, um, but it was a much slower pace, you know, a nine-year-old is not going to run as fast as a, a pro football player. Right. So it was able to learn um, certain techniques. And I have friends, uh, uh, Scott Clark and Phil Ellsworth, who have put me, you know, took me under their wings and allowed me to, to learn the game, uh, the tricks, and try to be in the right spot at the right time. And they've done it for so long. So here's where you want to be when they're coming down this way. Here's what camera, uh, here's the lenses. Um, you know, whether that's a 400, a 70, or 200, or a little 24, 14 to 24. So I was able to, to learn and then it just branched off. I went to uh, Africa last Christmas. Hmm. Uh, went to three safaris. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Uh, I go to an air show. And I sit next to the, the guys who are professional photographers for air shows and, and ask questions. So it's just not one aspect. Uh, only thing I haven't done is underwater shooting. Hmm. Even though I have I have an underwater housing, um, just I, I think I'd rather have my hands free when I'm underwater. <laughs> yeah, you and me both. Uh, but uh, you know everything I you know whether it's learning portraits, I'm I'm always trying to do something to not so much occupy my time, but to learn uh, what other people are, are doing. Because I'm not the best photographer. That's I'm not cool. The best scuba diving. I'm not the best pilot, but I have friends who are the best in that field, and I can rely on them. I think that people think once they're uh, a pro at something, they're a pro at everything, and that's not the case. There are people who do things better than you, and if you're willing to learn, they're willing to teach. Going back to Players TV for a minute, uh, have you thought about collaborating on content with Chris Paul, Carmelo Anthony? Have you thought about being behind the camera? I mean, we've talked about reality show and, and you know how some outdoor content would be cool, but have you thought about being behind the camera? Again, when you look yeah. at this opportunity, do you, do you envision some things with those people? Uh, yeah, 
uh, you know, the, not so much the, I want to do like a, uh, a day in a life of a football player, a basketball player, a baseball player, player simultaneously. Hmm. Uh, you know, what would a football player be doing? What would a baseball player and what would a basketball player? But have it split into three screens so you can see what is what the players are doing each day. Because we are so different. Um, to me, also, it's a lot easier for an athlete to come talk to another athlete because he has an idea hmm. and understands what goes on in that, that man's life or that woman's life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my wife loves soccer. The only person I want to be on the soccer team, I want to be the goalie. And my wife said, why do you want to be the goalie? I said, because number one, he gets to wear the different uniform. He got the glove and he the guy that looks sweet with the water bottle that he could put to the side. Everybody else is doing way too much running for me. And she starts laughing. She goes, that's the only thing you think of. I'm like, yeah, plus, he's the one that, you know, for probably eight minutes out of the game, he's the one person that you really care about. Right. And everybody else, oh, he made a goal, he made a goal, he made a goal. And, but you, I can't believe he let that goal in. I can't believe he did this. You know, I, you know the center and the goalie. Those are the only two people that you really know on the, on the uh, team. Yeah. The, but I, I, you want to, like, do I want to direct? Yeah. Um, do I want to go to, and I've, I've done enough commercials and been in a couple movies uh, to just sit behind it and... and but to dive into it, I really want to sit behind uh, uh, a couple shoots first to understand the creative part and the vision and, and what the mindset is before I do it. Um, just don't want to dive into something and have 15 other people go, no, 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 it should go like this, it should go like that. Uh, you can do that with one or two, but you just don't want to be unorganized when you do shoot something. Right. And, uh, and as far as my content, um, you really want to show people that, hey, I played baseball, but there's much more to, to me than just hitting the slider and running the walls. Um, I look at someone like Russell Westbrook right now. He's doing a documentary on Black Wall Street. Obviously, the Black Lives Matter movement is very, very strong right now. Is there any story that you look at historically and, and say, I want to tell that story? No. I mean, I think that you, you that what's going on now uh, with Black Lives Matter um, I think it's important. Um, you know, the, the, the thing is, for me, is I want to be treated fairly and equally. That's all I can ask. You know, I don't, I don't want to be put on a pedestal uh, because I play baseball and that you know me. Just treat me fairly and equally as a human being. And I think that's the, the, the problem that we're having is... You know, because of who I am. Yeah, I have a, 
I understand that I have a little more leeway than you. But the people who don't have voices should have a voice and should be treated as a human being. And I think, you know, when you see these things happen on TV, uh, you know, some people get numb to it. But for in the black community, we never get numb to it because, you know, it, it happens. Uh, you know, I sat there because I don't know what my wife feels when my boys leave. And she has to tell me, you know, even though we've had the talk, you know, what happens when you get pulled over? This is what happens when you see people uh, uh, in uniform. I think it was different for me growing up because I was able to go to the fire department and see those guys. I was able to go to the police department. We had field trips. We were climbing on the ladders. We had field trips where, you know, we went to the, uh, the police station and saw the police that worked in our, our uh, community. Um, I don't think that they have that now because I've never, you know, having three kids, they've never had that type of, of exposure. So I think it is different because some of the people that the, the families don't see the, the, the police in a certain way that I did as a kid. Um, you know, there are always going to be a few bad apples. Um, you know, there's bad apples in baseball. There's bad apples, you know, there's bad apples everywhere. But, you know, sometimes you can't blame one guy for the whole community. Um, again, it, it, it's a tough situation. Um, and people just want to be heard. And, and I think <clears throat> that's going to be a positive for, for the next generation of kids. I think this is a, a unique situation. I think it's going to be better for, like I said, better for this country. Um, that we're all in this together. I mean, if we kept one another. We all believe red. So. You know, going back to your original question about do I want to film? No, I've been sitting looking at, uh, you know, we watched uh, Black Wall Street twice. Um, and it, my wife is raised in Seattle, outside of Seattle, Gay Farber. Um, she never heard the story about Tulsa, but I did living on the East Coast. Hmm. And so she was like, I've never heard about this. And I was like, yeah, I remember this as a kid, uh, been talking about it. And we sat and watched it, uh, three out of the, three out of five, uh, four out of, well, two out of three kids was traded at work. So we all sat there and watched it and they were like, I can't believe that this happened. And, uh, so it was, it was quite a learning experience of, of you know, for my kids and, and my wife, where, like I said, I heard about it. And, um, you know, it, it gave us a conversation uh, about, you know, my kids were like, hey, can we go see it? Can we take a trip to go to Tulsa, Oklahoma, and just see what happened? Uh, <clears throat> can we go to um, 
Alabama and walk across the bridge. Uh, you know, they're, they want to do these things. And I'm like, okay. The only problem is they so far on, you know, with their sports, they're, they're never at home at the same time. Mm. So we haven't done these things. Uh, the bridge they really want to do, they keep bringing it up and everybody's home and then the pandemic hit. And so they wanted to walk across, uh, the bridge. Um, and they want to go to Tulsa. That's great that they want to, they want to learn that. And I have a daughter too. And, and, you know, I think young people right now are, are really interested in the, the history and, they do want to go to the places where that history happened. And I think it's great that, uh, you know, you're having those conversations with your kids. I know you've got to go soon. So just a couple more questions. Um, you know, when you were playing baseball, you and Michael Jordan had more swag than anyone. You had the backwards hat and the black bat. And I look at baseball now and it just doesn't seem to have the same hip cool factor to it that it had when, you were playing and I know that you know baseball now is having a tougher time getting young people interested because they're on their video games or they're on their phones and they're not going to sit and watch a game for two and a half hours is there anything baseball can do to kind of reattract that younger generation um I think if you love baseball you love baseball if you love football you love football if you love basketball you love basketball. Um, you know, it, it's how can you, you know, what my friends say is baseball has a, <clears throat> excuse me, baseball has a, baseball has a, how do you say it? Um, they don't have a talent problem. They have a superstar problem. Hmm. They got a lot of kids who can play baseball who are real talented but they don't have that one or two, three, four superstars that can carry the league. Hmm. Now, now <clears throat> did I think about that as a kid? Absolutely not. Um, did I think about, you know, being that guy that carried the league? No, it, it just so happens to happen. It's something, it's nothing that you can, that, you go, I want to be the guy. I want to carry the league because you may not put up the numbers to carry the league. But, you know, for me, um, I was a 19 year old. It was like the perfect storm. Um, I was a little bit rebellious on certain things. I mean, you know, people, Hey, he wears his hat backwards. Well, I wear my hat backwards because my dad had a fro and I wanted to wear his hat. And if I put, his hat on and at age six and you know, he's got a eight and a half and I got like a little five. It's not going to really stay on my head. So I just turned it around because I just wanted to wear my dad's hat. I didn't want to be, it wasn't like I was trying to be different. I just wanted to wear my dad's hat. Even now when I put on the hat, I put it on backwards. That's a great story. I never knew that was kind of the reason for why you, you wore your, your hat backwards, but it became cool. And I mean, you had to have noticed all the kids that were wearing their hats backwards because of you. Yeah. I started laughing because, you know, you had the, the, the rounded brim guys, you had the fold, the, 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 the one big crease in the middle. 
Uh, then now you got the flat bill hat. Uh, but the one thing that all of them do is turn it around. <laughs> so uh, have I noticed this? And I was on a Nike trip last year and I was the only one with my hat forward. Everybody else had their hat backwards. And they're like, how can you do? I was like, well, uh, yeah. And I was like, all right. So I turned my hat around. They were like, okay, that's better. Yeah, you know, they um, were but, all wearing it backwards because of you. And then they're like, wait a minute. He's the only one not wearing it backwards. Yeah, I, I, I still do it. I mean, it, it's so ingrained in me. Um, we talk about being defiant. I, I belong to a country club here. And... I got a letter in the the mail that says you got to wear your peak forward. So meaning your bill facing forward. So I built hats and it said peak forward on the back of it. So when I turned it around, it said peak forward <laughs> and I wore it and I'm like, you know, that's who I am. And I almost left the club because of, you know, you're not going to let me wear my hat backwards. Exactly. It's not like, uh, it's not like, a I'm a slob and not like my shirt is untucked. I got, you know, I just, this is who I am. Right. And I think, you know, when I did the three interviews, I think he, you know, being who I am, my, my life is the open book. You know, you know that everything that you see from home on derbies to this to that, my hat's going to be backwards until I play. Once I play, and if the if the Mariners would have put a logo on the back of the hat, I might have just wore it backwards then. <laughs> <laughs> and millions of kids would have done the same thing. I guarantee it. And they would have been trying to play in their games with their hats backwards. Yeah, I actually played a little league game with my hat backwards. I played a big league game in the way we had turn back the clock, turn uh, uh, turn up the clock. So I was able to wear my hat backwards during a game. But uh, I wore my hat backwards in the Little League game all the time. Well, and you wore your hat backwards in the home run derby, especially the one that you hit the bomb off of uh, the building at Camden Yards. Like, that's an iconic picture of you hitting that shot because no one's hit that building before or since, and, and you had the hat backwards. So that was fun in the home run derby, too, that, A, Major League Baseball let you do that, but, B, like, you know, that's a fun event, and you brought fun to those events, and you brought energy to those events. Well, if you're going to do it, you've got to have some fun. Uh, you know, my, my thing is I'm not going to do something that I don't enjoy. It's just I'm not going to give you the effort. Um, that's certainly – I will tell you, schoolwork is a little different. Nobody likes to do schoolwork, but that has to be done. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I don't like to take out the garbage, but I, it has to be done. There's certain things in this world that you're going to have to do. Uh, but for, uh, for me, doing home run derby, uh, playing baseball, I enjoyed it. And, you know, that's, you know, what I wanted to do. And, but, you know, sports teaches you so many things. You know, it teaches you how to fail and get back up. You know, not everybody's going to be successful, but sports is the one thing, you know, that one good shot, that one good hit, that one good catch, that one, you know, good pass keeps you coming back. And, but it, it teaches you that failure, you don't have to accept it. You just got to keep going. You know, 
we're talking, I was talking to the kids last night about um, I had 10,000 at bats, a little less than 10,000 at bats. I got 2,700 hits. Well, I had to fail a little more than 7,000 times. Mm. And they're like, and they look at it a different way, like, oh, I said, you know, so I understand about failure more than you guys do. Because, you know, if you catch three passes out of 10 in football, you ain't going to last too long. You make three shots out of 10 in basketball, you're not going to last too long. Right. And so, so I understand about getting knocked down and having to pick yourself back up because I've had to do it more times than you guys. Resilience. It's, it's definitely a, a common denominator with successful people uh as we end speaking of failure my golf game is a failure but i know that you love golf and you've played some great courses we were talking before uh i live in oregon so bannon dunes is one of my favorite resorts i just got to play the opening of the sheep ranch i know you've played at bandon are there some other courses that you have really enjoyed over the course of your lifetime i went to scotland went to ireland mm. uh was I played uh, in Spain, um, but U.S. courses, you know, Pebble Beach, Torrey Pine, uh, Bandon Dunes. Um, I, I belong to Grove Twenty Three, which is Michael's course. Where is that? Uh, Hope Sound. Okay. Um, I'm a member at Alworth. Um. You know, I play Disney a lot. You know, I have friends who, who are VPs at Disney, so we get a chance to to go out. But, uh, you know, I'm a, uh, I like to play everywhere. You know, I don't, I, golf is, you know, people say, oh, you're playing the guy next to you. No, you're playing the golf course. They get mad at me because I call it a recreational activity. <laughs> <laughs> I said, there's no defense in golf. There's like the course of the defense. I go, he ain't human. <laughs> I can't. He can't force his will on you. If you want to hit a seven iron all the way down, you can't. Right. I said, <laughs> but let somebody stand in front of you and block your shot. It's a little different. Let somebody catch your fly ball. It's a little different. Have you ever played okay. with Tiger? Yeah, I've. Uh, I played with Tiger um, up until like '99 when, like, uh, when he moved down to Jupiter. Um, we would probably early in his career, we'd probably play about 40 times a, uh, a year. Um, you know, there was one game that it was now I'm the high handicapper at, at this time at like 10 and it was Mark O'Meara, Payne Stewart, Lee Jansen, Scott Hope, Craig Perry, Grant Waite, Tiger. And I know I'm missing somebody. Uh, and we were all, and it was like, there was a cluster of balls and then it was my ball. <laughs> then there was like a cluster of balls on the green. There was my ball. Uh, and you know, these guys, are the, the, the best in the world. And, um, they're just throwing darts all day. Um, I think tiger shot 62. Wow. Um, and then Tiger and I went out a little later and he gave me 
uh, 12 shots and I shot 76 and he shot like 60, 61, 62, somewhere around there. He said, Ooh, you didn't work for that one. <laughs> <Started laughing. laughs> uh, but there was one day where he lost to my wife on a par five. Uh, we were all playing and this was the year that Michael and, and, um, John Elway retired. Okay. So we tee off, she hits a bomb and then she hits it to like two feet of the pin. Dang. So she eagles it, tiger birdies it, not part. Well, she was like, I'm gone. She jumps in her golf cart and drives <laughs> home. She was like, I just beat the number one player in the world. What do I have to prove now? Oh, that's a great story. And she never played after that. Like, she never played competition, like, not competition golf, but she never really played golf after that. She was like, I can't, I can only go down after beating him. Uh, she's won the, the ladies cup at Alworth. I came in like third. So she's got the bigger trophy in golf at the house. And that's not really fun, you know, because my friends always remind me. So who has the bigger trophy in golf? And I'm like, oh, it's just, I do. But I have to remind her and everybody else that I have three hole in ones now. So, wow, three hole in ones. Where's your first one? At Disney after the tournament. So, when they had the tournament here, uh, one of my friends and I would, he was the uh, director of golf at Disney, we would go out that Monday. And it was uh, number 12, par three hit a little cut five iron and never saw it go in. I went to the back bunker. He went to the front bunker and then he walked and he threw his hat, glove. I mean, his hat down and it was sitting there. Oh now man. I made it. I made an eight on the next hole. Cause I was calling everybody. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but Hey, uh, all anyone cares about is the hole in one. They don't care about the eight. And then this past November, I was in Mexico and uh, made a uh, hole in one. And then in uh, January, I made another one. <clears throat> Dang, you're on a roll with hole in ones. Right. I, I kept, I, you know, I, I, I told I got my international uh, hole in one, so I'm good. That's great. Ken Griffey Jr., Baseball Hall of Famer. You can find him on Instagram at the real Ken Griffey Jr. Uh, again, investor and partner with Players TV. You can find them online at playerstv.co. Ken, such a pleasure to talk to you. Happy Father's Day to you. Uh, it seems like you're a Thank great you. dad. And, uh, you know, this has been a pleasure and I appreciate it. No problem. Thank you. Now, here's Brian's interview with MLB eight time all star pitcher John Smoltz from May 2020. My guest is John Smoltz. He is a first ballot baseball Hall of Famer, Cy Young Award winner, eight-time All-Star, starred for the Atlanta Braves for most of his 21-year career, won a World Series with the Braves in 1995, led the Braves to 14 consecutive division titles and five World Series appearances. He's the only player in Major League Baseball history with at least 200 wins and 150 career saves. He's now the lead analyst for Major League Baseball on Fox, teaming up with Joe Buck. John, thanks so much for joining me on Sports Business Radio. How are you? I'm doing good considering, uh, you know, unprecedented times, but I'm, I'm doing well. Thank you. Yeah. Are you and your family staying hunkered down? Is that, uh, you're in Georgia, right? 
Yeah, we don't have quite of the uh, the effects that everybody else has, and it's been, uh, you know, the weather has been phenomenal, so that helps getting outdoors and exercising and stuff like that. But it's been it's been relatively uh, uh, not as impactful here as it's been everywhere else. Well, that's good news. I'm glad that you're staying safe. I want to go back to earlier in your life. You grew up in Michigan. Your parents were accomplished accordionists. You played the accordion at a young age, but then at age seven, you declared to your parents that you wanted to be a major league baseball player. How were you first exposed to baseball and what made you fall in love with the game of baseball? Yeah, that's a great question because, you know, most of my upbringing was, was a lot of discipline, a lot of hard work and a lot of practicing uh, an instrument that I was introduced to by my parents knew nothing about. And of course, at a very young age was playing it, I guess at a high level. I, I mean, I'm going on what they say, um, you know, I was in competitions. I was on stages with much older kids than me. And, and the accordion for that matter was bigger than me. So at that point, um, but I watched it on TV, you know, watched the Tigers growing up and something intrigued me about it. And I would go outside and try to emulate what I saw with a rubber ball and throw it against a brick wall and, and started loving the idea of, of playing baseball and sports. That, that, that came from nowhere. I mean, that, that, that wasn't anything in our family that was talked about. It's just something I, I wanted to do. And, and, and I'm just so grateful that my parents let me have the opportunity to do it. I mean, there was no reason for them to think that that would be, a, you know, anything more than a hobby and it would phase out, but it certainly developed into a passion. You're a parent now too. I'm a parent as well. When your kids come to you and they say they want to do something, you know, sometimes it is hard to not get in their way and just let them pursue their dreams. So that was really important that your parents did that at a young age is and a lot of it you know without their knowledge so i mean there wasn't a lot of institutions like there are now and a lot of teachers it was just basically rec baseball t-ball uh it wasn't an overkill of 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 things that exist today where you have so many uh, avenues to pursue your passion but as long as as i had my priorities in order they were going to allow me to do whatever uh, i wanted to do that was naturally good and they they instituted the rules for me, and I obeyed them, and 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 got a chance to you know in Michigan where the seasons are exactly that there's seasons for sports, and you can't play year round. It was the perfect scenario for me. Uh, I did play baseball, basketball, and some football. Uh, basketball was something I loved. Uh, thought I could play at the next level of the college. But baseball was where my realization of how far I could take it as I got older. One of the most impressive parts to me about your Baseball Hall of Fame speech was you took some time at the end and you talked about the importance of young athletes playing multiple sports. And to me, on that platform, coming from someone like you, I thought that was so important. I couldn't agree with you more. But as someone who played multiple sports, who went on to become a Hall of Fame baseball player, why is playing multiple sports so important for young people today? Well, the first and foremost thing is that the body's not meant to play a one-year, one-year, one sport. It's just not. You can't have a one-sided 
you know, you've got to have a balance to your body. If you play baseball year-round, there's just not a lot of evidence that shows that your, uh, your body and your uh, avoiding of injuries is going to be there. And, you know, a well-rounded and opportunist, opportunistic kid will benefit so much more that, you know, there's this theory out there that you choose, you know, people have this belief that you choose the sport. I really believe more that the body chooses the sport. Hmm. In other words, you don't know what you're going to grow into. You might be 6'11 and want to be a goalie when you're a young kid, and obviously that's not going to work. Or, you know, based on your size and agility and different attributes, I think the sport chooses you. And, uh, you know, because of, of, of the way that sports have evolved and the positions that you need, uh, skilled players or bigger players play a different position. So the other thing that I don't believe parents understand is that you can't make an athlete. You athletically have a genetic disposition that gives you an advantage over the next person. What you can do as a parent is give the guidance and the discipline and the opportunities to get that athlete to the next level that they're capable of. But I don't believe that you can make a LeBron James, a Michael Jordan, or I think that is so far-fetched that people don't understand that athletic component. And, and I have this general belief that you can give me the top two, four, five athletes of every sport at the age of 10, and you can give them a grant that will allow them to not play the sport for two years. And when they are 12 or 13, I guarantee you they're still going to be the top top two or five in, the, in their state or city. Guarantee it. Wow. And that's something that is falling on deaf ears because what we're doing is we're magnifying that experience by, I, by just rushing that young person into making a choice early on and playing that sport nonstop. And they burn out, and they fizzle out, and, they, you know, the old adage, only the strong survive. That is such a flawed philosophy, but everyone's buying into it because the money in the business of sports is so rampant in instruction and individualism that we're losing the kid's ability to play multiple sports, have fun, and be that athlete that he or she uh, was given the opportunity to be. Yeah, I completely agree with you. The other thing that's really concerning is, according to the American Journal of Sports Medicine, nearly 57% of all Tommy John surgeries are performed on 15 to 19-year-olds. John, you're not even fully developed at 15 years old. How is this continuing to happen? Well, that's my point. It's the risk-reward and the, and the opportunity to gain the, you know, I said it. That's why it was so important for me in my Hall of Fame speech to not let people believe the myths. You know, mm -hmm. I am probably the first pitcher. I don't know if there'll be other pitchers that go into the Hall of Fame with Tommy John. I'm sure that the chances go up, but the rate of which Tommy John is happening and the philosophies that people are believing is really a bad philosophy. This is what I try to tell people. If you have a Tommy John surgery at 13, you've got a good likelihood or a chance to return to 13-year-old baseball. But that's it. If you have a Tommy John surgery at the big leagues, the likelihood of getting back to the big leagues is great. Greater than it was if you have it in the minor leagues. There's no guarantee you're going to be better. There's no guarantee you're going to throw harder. All these myths are being only 
followed by the lead pitchers in the big leagues who have had it. But to your point, the thing that drives me crazy is that no one's paying attention or no one cares enough to try to, to avert, divert this, this epidemic. And eventually it's going to catch up to people. And parents are spending all of their money when their child is young to try and get them draft dollars, to get them to the big leagues when they've paid for college twice over and, the, and they've actually exceeded or given this young man a chance to play at the next level, they've increased his injury rate so much because he's throwing at a high velocity so young that they cannot sustain that. And it's taken its toll. And I had mine after 14 full years in the big leagues, close to 3,000 innings or close to 2,000 innings, whatever that was. And, you know, it's a different story for me. So, um that, that blows my mind. I could talk to a thousand parents tomorrow and they're going to act. I guarantee you they're going to walk away going, Hey, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Based on the inundation of all these mom and pop shops that are trying to create the next great, you know, major league yeah. player, they're buying into that system versus trusting a guy who could have played 21, 22 years in the big leagues. It is truly amazing to watch this phenomenon repeat itself over and over again. No, I agree. And I, I don't think it's talked about enough. So that's why I wanted to bring it up with you. The other part of your career that was just masterful and, and so impressive to me and, and many others is it's one thing to be physically gifted. It's another thing to be mentally tough. And you had a record of 15 and four with a 2.67 earned run average in 41 career postseason games. The bigger the stakes, the better you pitched. How can you become a strong mental athlete? Because, John, again, part of it is being physically gifted, but a lot of it is the mental state of athletes as well. Yeah, I think that's another component we don't put into the athlete as an organization, as an entity that's trying to develop uh, athletes and, and the whole person of the athlete. There is the mind, body, soul, right? And I think the biggest thing is, is if you don't have the imagination and the willingness to fail or not being afraid to fail, I don't think you can be truly great. I really don't because you have a limit put on you because of those uh, fail, fear to failure thing. And I think growth happens when you fail and growth happens when you're not afraid. And, and as a year early uh, youngster, I was never afraid of the moment. I created it in my mind. I played that ball against the wall and, and I was in game sevens all the time. And, and not that that's a recipe for success just because you think it, but if you're not prepared for that moment and you don't want it and you don't have that ability to just stare failure right in the face, I don't think you can re re rise to that occasion. And I've always been that kind of thinker. I've always been the guy, give me the, I want to make the shot. You know, I want to throw the pitch. Uh, I'll drive the car. Um, and, and, and learning those things about yourself go a long way for when you're in the moment and being pinched by pressure. And I, I relished it. I loved it. I wish every game was like that. I wish I could have pitched every regular season game. But what people don't understand is that adrenaline, attention to detail, and the effort level goes way up. So there's no way I could have pitched 35 postseason games in a regular season game. No possible way. Don't think I could have gotten through 15 of them. But when you get to that time of the year and there is no tomorrow and you're not guaranteed another start, that is the effort that I used to put into one particular postseason game as a, as a, 
as opposed to a regular season game. And it, it definitely benefited me and my ability to go to the next level and increase my velocity and spin it even tighter. Uh, that's where my talent came out, I believe, at the best time of the year. And I wanted it, and it didn't matter what had happened going into the end of the season. I could have won 10 in a row or lost 10 in a row. It wasn't going to change my view on that particular that start that I was about to have because that's a total different season. It means absolutely nothing uh, when the season's over. It means everything when you're playing in that postseason game. All right. Like you said, you pitched in some big game sevens. I'm interested in process, especially from people at the top of their, uh, you know, game like you. It's a game seven. What does your process look like? I mean, I see, you know, people like you charting pitches in the dugout in the games before. When does your process start for the next start? Yeah, and that's where each person is different. That's where you're going to get the personality that comes in that plays out differently for each person. I know people who have pitched the game the night before in their mind and they go to bed and they think about every single nuance. I didn't like doing that. I didn't like thinking about pitching till I had to. I could sleep till one o'clock in the afternoon the day that I would pitch. I, I basically would go to bed and sleep till I woke up and I would store up all my energy and all my abilities for that one moment to make the 130 best decisions of my life. Because that's what it comes down to, making 130 decisions. And that's about how many pitches I would throw in a postseason game. And to do that for me, I had to stay totally relaxed. And to be totally relaxed, I didn't think about baseball and pitching until I had to. And that usually started in the bullpen. Now, I had my idea about the hitters, and I did all my you know information and study beforehand. But not to the point where it was driving me crazy that I was over-preparing. Over, uh, I traditionally, during big games, would take a nap right before the game. So I'd get to the stadium, let's say at 4 o'clock, games at 7, and I would do my, you know, play cards or try to just sit around and watch TV. And then there would be a point where, I don't know, about an hour, hour and a half before the game, I'd lay on the training group table, and that was the most relaxed that I would be for that entire day. And then people used to look at me going, how could you do that? How could you take a nap on game 7? And I did every one of them. I pitched three of them. I missed the pregame speech, I think, by Ted Turner. I was on the ta- you know, training room table. I'd set the little uh, timer, and I'd wake up and, and, and get ready for what was going to be what I think the most enjoyable game of my life. And, and they were. I was intense. I was locked in. But, you know, I did not hear the crowd, and I did not hear it at the volume that it was at. My philosophy of pitching in those games, I pitched uh, uh, all three of them, or two of them on the road in hostile environments. And I would always say, keep the crowd to a dull roar. If it's a dull roar, you're doing your job. If it's an emphatic roar, that means things are happening that are going to start getting crazy. And that means you're not doing your job. So fortunately I was able to do that and slow my heartbeat and be able to be in what I would call pitcher catcher zone, just a tunnel. And the hitter was insignificant most of the time when I would be in those battles. I love that. Thanks for describing that. You played with Tom Glavin for 15 years, with Greg Maddox for 10 years. I think the best trio in, in Major League Baseball history. Uh, I watched a lot of your games. And one of the things that struck me is you guys were also friendly, but it also seemed like you were each trying to one-up each other on the next start. And you had this friendly competition going. 
Do you ever look back and say, I wonder what my career would have looked like if I didn't play with Glavin and Maddox? Because I think you playing with them and them playing with you made each of the three of you better. Would you agree? Yeah, no doubt. Uh, we had this unspoken um, tenacity, but we didn't have an ego that was in the forefront because if it would have been, that would have not worked for all of us. I mean, we had so much fun and the time we spent together on and off the field was uh, priceless to this day learned a lot nobody pitched like each other i was a you know if, if i had to give you a description of how it went in our careers glavin and maddox took turns driving the car and i was always in the back seat hmm. and then the postseason would come around and then i could go okay guys my turn because you guys have been hall of famers your career and I knew they were headed to the Hall of Fame after about seven years. Whereas I was the guy with all the talent. And I was the guy that basically had to always live up to an expectation that was not only far-fetched for myself, but everybody else thought I was supposed to be better and do more with what I had. And when you have Glavin and Maddox and doing what they're doing, they're the Picasso, right? They're the ones that are thought of as pitchers because they don't have the stuff that I had. So I had the burden of stuff, but then I proved to people over the course of my career that I actually was a pitcher with stuff. Yeah, I was wild and untamed a little bit early, but the three of us picked each other's brains in ways that we could learn something about watching a game and watching each other pitch that without each other, I truly believe we would have never reached some of the level of success we all would have been successful in our own right, but to your point, I think it really sharpened each other. Uh, we had a, a really neat, cohesive group that had the ego checked at the door and had the ability to learn from each other. It was really uh, one of the best times of our careers uh, when we were all together. I love golf, and the stories are well documented that you played golf regularly with Greg Maddox and, and Tom Glavin. What's the best golf story you can share of the three of you, you know, that uh, is, is PG? Well, we had so many. I mean, you know, we, we just did things that – this was the unwritten rule. First of all, as the golf concierge, I set everything up. I had the rent-a-cars. I had the courses set up. All they had to do was show up in the morning. If they showed up in the morning, they knew we were going – to a great golf course and it was going to be early that we'd get back and still have our days to where, you know, we could do whatever we wanted to do. But we never let golf get anything other than what it was. It was a diversion from the everyday mechanical grind of pitching. So we would have fun and we would definitely have our matches. Um, but it started out in a way where we didn't know a lot about golf, right? I mean, I knew nothing about golf. I, I didn't even have any appreciation for it. So much so, so that I, my first real on-the-road golf trip at San Francisco Golf Club, I put an exploding golf ball on the first tee with everybody watching. <laughs> and I, I thought it was hilarious. I thought it was something, and nobody laughed, and everyone looked at me like I had, I had just done something so awful. And realizing where I was later in the history of that golf course, I mean, we did things like Glavin one time took a divot so big it went underneath the tee. The tee was still in the divot, and we put the divot in the golf cart, not realizing that when we got to the pro shop, there's this huge divot in our golf cart that we had taken from the course. As a memento, 
to show how bad his swing was. Um, but we we all we always got to a point where we 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 got better in our golf games. I was always the guy taking on those two, and wherever we went, we had a lot of fun. There was a lot of practical jokes that would be fun, practical jokes. The one I can think of is like, you know, there was a three or four pound uh, bass dead on the bank of one of the places we were playing, and Avery uh, took it and put it under the pedal of Greg Maddox, and when he went to go to step down, you know, he didn't see it and saw this fish. Well, then the group behind us was Billy Andre Glavin and another, and they put the fish in the hole with the pin in, and you know it was just kind of leaning over, and I'm and and I'm thinking we have a match with them. If that fish somehow helps a shot go in, I'm going to be ticked. Well, lo and behold, Billy Andre pulled out a shot from 170 yards with the fish in the hole, <laughs> and they didn't know what was up. You know, they come closer to the to the green and like, what is in the what's in the hole? And it's this big old fish, and come to find out. His ball fit perfectly in the hole with the fish uh, in, in in the cup. So we, we, we just had a lot of fun, and we, we kept it light, and we never let it get to the point where it's going to affect us, you know, off the field. So a few years ago, Tiger Woods says, John Smoltz is the best golfer that I've seen who's not on the PGA Tour. Do you want to try and play on the Champions Tour regularly in the future? I know you've played in some tournaments, but is this something that you look at and say, you know what? I might want to do that on a regular basis. Uh, I, I wouldn't be able to do it on a regular basis, but in hindsight, if I had my, you know, if a, in a perfect world and I could dedicate just to playing golf, yeah, I would love that challenge to earn my way onto a level of qualifying with the greatest players in the world. That's the only competition I have left. I'm, I'm not kidding myself to think that I could in any way, day in and day out, become one of them, but the one thing that I have learned in my baseball career is that certain things that I have put forth in the discipline, the discipline and, and the practice, I just don't have that time to do that. And I have a career that I'm obligating as a broadcaster and in the middle of it, if I can do certain things, which Fox and MLB network have been unbelievable, letting me have these opportunities that come by, you know, come my way. Uh, I've learned so much about my golf game. But I also have learned that, you know, these are the greatest guys in the world for a reason. That's what they've done. Uh, I'm not afraid in that sport to be exposed, to learn, to fail. Uh, Qualifying for the U.S. Senior Open was the biggest thing I've ever accomplished in my life. Wow. Athletically, because people have no idea what that's like. You know, in baseball, I was gifted enough to throw a baseball and have teammates help me out, get me to a place of where, you know, my game and my career will be defined by my stats. But in golf, it's just you. And there is nobody to bail you out, nobody to mess you up. And it is about you and Mother Nature and your nerves and the ability to get that little white ball in the hole. So that, to me, is something that I have grown as an incredible passion. And uh, I just want to play as long as I can. And if opportunities along the way provide it, you know, finally I won something. You know, I won back-to-back tournaments at the Diamond Resorts in a pretty good celebrity field. And my next one that I'd like to win is American Century Championship, which I've come close but not been able to take down that trophy. And then see what happens after that. All right. You work for Fox, and I want to talk about your relationship with Joe Buck in a minute. But you know the Tiger, Phil, Peyton Manning, Tom Brady tournaments coming up later this month, made for TV. 
if Fox came to you tomorrow and said, John, we want you to put together a foursome, you're in the foursome, who are the other three in your foursome? Yeah, that's always a, a you know, that's a great question, but a hard one to, to fill up because there are so many, there's so many people you would love to play golf with. I always said, when I've been asked that question before, you know, and they would always ask the question, living or past, I would always want to go back. You know, I'd want somebody super funny. I'm a big fan of comedians and just humor. I'd want somebody in the group that's going to make you laugh. Um, I'd want somebody that I could pick my brain. Like, I'd like to go back and, 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 you know, play golf with Jackie Robinson and just hmm. see what that was like. Just, just the, the, the 18 holes of being able to ask questions to people is so timeless and so great that you learn things about people. Um, so I would always want to go back and, and, and have somebody that I could never have been around or ever know what it was like. But the current, you know, current foursomes, um, I've always said, it, it, you know, cherry picking PGA pros is, is like, I mean, it doesn't matter if it's a PGA pro. I love playing with them because I'm going to learn something about them. I got a chance to play with Tiger, you know, forever, about 30, 40 times. Never played with Phil. I've never really played with some of the younger guys that are so dynamic. So I would probably lean towards some of those guys to see really the 380-yard drives, the 360s, to see how it's so intimidating when you're playing with them versus watching it on TV. Um, but I just love golf that much that it almost wouldn't matter who's in my group because as long as they love golf and want to have fun and aren't super slow, that would be my prerequisite. You can't be super slow. Right. Uh, that I would have a blast uh, playing golf in, with, with anybody. All right, we've got a few minutes left, so I want to talk about your career now as an analyst for Fox Sports. You team with Joe Buck. I think you guys do a fantastic job. I love your insight and your ability to really uh, share that with the common person, the viewer who has never played baseball at the level that you've played it at. But Talk to me a little bit about your rapport with Joe, developing that rapport, because it seems very natural on air. Yeah, it's been awesome. He's one of the best, in, uh, if not the best, in the last 30, 40 years. And, and when you're at that level, you're always going to have some form of criticism from somebody else thinking, you know, your team's not winning, so it's got to be the broadcaster's fault. I've never understood that for the rest of my life, but that's always a a narrative that's out there because Joe does so many national games and football and baseball and now golf. It's just like, he's in the forefront of all the biggest games there are. And I got a chance to work with him and it was such an easy, it's like the easiest gig in the world because he's so willing to pass the ball and give you the opportunity to do what you do best. And I always said, you know, as I've gotten in this business now for the last 10 years, when you can do a game with your eyes closed, and know when your partner is done talking and the rhythm of which he goes about it, that's when it's smooth. Because that's where I was, I was really at ease with working with Joe because you know there isn't going to be a lot of stepping on each other. And his humor is, is similar to mine. And, and I'm just, I've always uh, enjoyed, you know, even when I was an active player, just listening to Joe do the World Series or NFL football and, um, it's not work to me when I get in a booth. It's work that what I have to do is a lot of work because I'm preparing really, really uh, hard for, for the moment. 
But when you get in the booth, all that pre-work just is allowing me to do what I do. And um, that part, when we get in the booth, is so much more fun than it is work. As we said at the start of this conversation, we're in a weird time right now. Baseball, like other sports, they're trying to figure out, are they going to come back? Are they not going to come back? Are they going to come play with no fans or fans? If you had to call a game for Fox and there's no fans in attendance, doesn't that change the dynamic of everything? It's going to be different, yeah. No, I've, I've been trying to think what that's going to be like and just even kind of forecasting the, the sounds that we take for granted. You know, we got our headset on and you can hear the crowd noise, but you're going to hear everything now. You're going to hear the crack of the bat. You're going to hear all kinds of different banter that you would never hear. And, and to be uh, fair, that's going to be a challenge for a lot of people and getting used to, including the players. And just learning how to adapt to the circumstances is something I've always been pri- I've prided myself on in figuring out a way to make the necessary changes because you know we're all creatures of habit and 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 one of the things that I'm un- you know be honest uncomfortable right now there's nothing I can do to prepare for the upcoming season there's no pre-work that I can do because Ross you just don't know what's going to happen and right. how the rules are going to change so I'm going to have to catch up just like everyone else on the fly and get my best version of myself as the season ramps up. My goals as a broadcaster were the same as a baseball player. Be at my best at the time it calls for you to be at your best. I want to give the best broadcast I can every single game. But it's much more difficult to make a regular season game seem like a playoff game. You just can't. It's not there to be... You just can't do it. So what comes naturally in the postseason for me as a player, uh, I feel the same as a broadcaster because I've lived every moment, and I don't go into a game trying to make somebody learn something. I'm hopeful that in a game I've allowed somebody to learn something they didn't know before they would have listened to it because I don't think broadcasting is about a ton of words. It's about impacting your words so that they understand the nuances. So you can't broadcast to everyone as if they're experts as the same time you can't broadcast to everybody as if they've never seen it. There's a balance that you have to play in there that allows the experts and the novice to be able to go, ah, oh, I I understand that. And so um, that's been the the biggest um, compliment, if you will, that people have given me is that you're, you're talking to me as if I'm not talking down to me and you're not using verbiage that only you know. You're explaining the game and I've learned something having listened to you. And I, I hope that can continue uh, as the game changes and evolve. I'm trying to change and evolve with the game with different terminologies and different, you know, technology and analytics. I'm learning as the game shifts into a different era uh, how to balance you know, the game that I played versus the game that I'm seeing now and the, the conversion of the two. Yeah. Uh, MLB Whip Around airs every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern on Fox Sports. John, are we ever going to see you on social media? I see no Twitter, no Instagram. What do you think? Yeah, my kids have been trying for years. <laughs> my agent. Um, I'm not a big fan of it. That doesn't mean it's not a great thing. Uh, I know personally what it would do to me. And so... I, I just choose to, to live my life the best way I can. I, I understand that all of this started for good and that in this starting for good, there's a lot of bad that happens in the social media and there's a lot of people just, you know, sitting behind a, 
a computer or a phone that loves to take shots of people. And that wouldn't be good for me. Um, and, and I just choose to, to honestly, um, live my life and, and be the best version I can. And that if, if that means no social media, that means no social media. Um, I've, I've just never gotten into the understanding of why people would care what I'm doing. Um, and I, and I just, it, it would take a lot more time for me to, to be integrated and fully in uh, with social media the way it exists today. I think there's a lot of funny people out there. I think there's a lot of great stuff out there. But I'm a guy that when I'm, I'm pretty active. So I, if I have time to do something, I'm doing it. I don't watch a lot of shows. I've never watched a Netflix. I've never watched a series other than what's on you know cable TV. Um, I want to do something and be active, and that usually involves golf, work outside, games with my family, uh, or my work. And that's kind of the cycle that I keep spinning around. Do you have a favorite baseball movie? Um, sports movies are tough for me. I, I, I think, you know, Bull Durham is funny. Um, I, I think it, it's, it's something that you can, I mean, it, it, the reality of it isn't as quite, real as the, the, the what baseball players do but it's close i like that um but the natural is pretty cool in ways that you know theatrical at the end but i would lean towards towards those those two i think yeah that's interesting you know what movie and then i'll let you go kind of reminds me of you a little bit is for love of the game a lot of people have told me that. My because, family have told me that. Yeah, and, I mean, uh, you talked about how zeroed in you were and how focused you were. And in that game, that's what he did. Every single pitch, like you said, I have to make 130 good decisions. That's the vibe I got from that movie is that every single pitch mattered. Yeah, no, I, I can see that. And, I, and I've and i watched that with Kevin Cosner playing that role. And, uh, you know, I... I during this time, and, and, and honestly, during this weird time of our lives, I've actually gone back uh, through the network and watched a lot of the games, the epic games that I was involved in. And, and it was pretty cool to rewatch it. You know, I didn't get a chance in my career to watch a lot of those games. To be honest with you, I've seen Game 7 of uh, 1991 now four times. That's not a lot. That's not a lot. In a, in a time frame where, you know, there was about seven years ago I hadn't watched it once, yet alone four times. And just getting a chance to watch those games and see how I reacted. I'm, I'm actually shocked at my first four years in the big leagues, in the biggest games of when I thought I was getting squeezed at the plate, of not reacting. Because I sure turned into a grumpier, overreacting <laughs> pitcher that used to bark from time to time when I thought you know, calls were missed, but I was more shocked at, at my 24 and under reaction. Like, well, that was no big thing. I'll just throw another pitch because I'm sitting there watching it going, I'm getting hosed <laughs> and, and I'm getting mad. But my, my younger version was uh, a little more calmer than my older version. John Smoltz, first ballot baseball hall of famer, lead analyst now for major league baseball on Fox. He teams with Joe Buck does a tremendous job. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me on Sports Business Radio. My pleasure. I had a lot, a lot of fun. Thank you. Now, here's Brian's interview with MLB six-time All-Star pitcher CC Sabathia from December 2020. 
My guest is C.C. Sabathia. He played 19 years for the Cleveland Indians, Milwaukee Brewers, and the New York Yankees. He won a title with the Yankees in 2009. He won the AL Cy Young Award in 2007. He's one of three African-American pitchers with 3,000 career strikeouts, joining Ferguson Jenkins and Bob Gibson, one of three left-handed pitchers with 3,000 career Ks. He joins Randy Johnson and Steve Carlton. His documentary, Under the Grapefruit Tree, the C.C. Sabathia story debuts December 22nd at 9 p.m. Eastern Time on HBO. It'll also be available to stream on HBO Max. C.C., how are you? Thanks for joining me. No problem, no problem. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this. So a lot of players at the end of their career, they reflect back on their career. I've screened your documentary. It's deeply personal. I found it really compelling. Walk us through the decision to A, make the documentary, and then B, how that process unfolded. Yeah, so I think, um, you know, just coming up on last year, you know, being, you know knowing it was going to be my last year, um, talking with my wife and, you know, just, just – Getting the chance to watch, you know, I got a chance to watch, um, you know, Andy in his last year and Jeet in his last year and Mo and, you know, Sato and all these different guys. Um, I was thinking it'd be cool to be able to document some of this stuff. You know what I mean? Um, thought, you know, it would be a good chance I'd come up on 3,000 strikeouts, um, 250 wins. Um, you know, like you mentioned earlier, you know, it's a big deal for me to be the third African American. You know, to have 250 wins and 3,000 strikeouts in the history of the game. You know, that's that's uh, that's a big deal to me. So I wanted to be able to document some of this stuff and catch some of our cool family moments traveling on the road this last year. And um, you know, I told my wife it'd be really cool to be able to do that. And I was more thinking, you know, just home movie stylish and you know, just something for the family to have. And um, you know, we got into it. And, you know, started just filming some of the things from the last year and, and just started talking through the story and, you know, thought it would be really cool um, if we did the whole story um, and, and told everything, you know, including the addiction, um, you know, how I grew up, um, you know, my, my relationship with my father, which I feel like gets lost a lot in, in you know, my story. Um, so to be able to, to, to have a chance to really tell um you know, the truth about our, our relationship and how close we were, um, you know, was something I was excited about. And, you know, HBO does phenomenal work with their documentaries and, and all really their HBO sports division is, is incredible. Um, so I was just really excited that they were interested um, in letting me tell my story and, and, and uh, you know, just super excited that it's going to air on HBO. You know, it just sounds weird to hear that you have a documentary about your life that is going to come on HBO and, you know, I've watched so many different, you know, iconic athletes, um, you know, have documentaries on HBO. So to be able to, to have one here myself is, uh, is exciting. No, I agree. HBO does great work. And I know this was also done in conjunction with uh, Major League Baseball. But, you know, like you said, CC, a lot of people do documentaries. The fact that you were willing to tell the story about your battle with addiction, you spent 29 days in rehab. And kind of when you return from rehab and how you looked at your career the rest of the way, that was really compelling to me. It was very emotional. Uh, thank you. Yeah, and, and you know, the, when I went into rehab, it was, you know, at the time it was very emotional. It was very public. Um, and I did that on purpose to, to, you know, one, help, you know, somebody else that was maybe going through, you know, what I was going through at that time, and two, help myself, you know, and, and you know, to hold myself accountable. Um you know, I was, 
I was with a couple of fellas the other day watching some football games, um, and one of the guys asked me if I wanted a drink. And, you know, I immediately said no and, you know, told him I hadn't been drinking, I hadn't had a drink in five years. And he was like, oh, really? And, and you know, for me, I just assume everybody knows my story, you know, and, and knows how, because how public it was and, and it was everywhere. So, um, and then that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do it is, is for people to really know. And, and I had another buddy that was sitting there at the, at the time, too. And, you know, just for me, like, if, if it would have been a secret, you know, me going to rehab and the guy that was sitting next to me didn't know, you know, then I could I could take that drink and not be able to hold myself accountable. But for every my, my story being so public and everybody knowing that I went to rehab and you know dealt with these struggles, you know the guy sitting next to me could look at me and be like, or, or can take care of me, be like, hey, you probably shouldn't have that drink. You know what I'm saying? So that's that's the reason why I wanted to make it so public. No, I think it's it's really brave and and you know, like you said, I think it's going to help people in the future with the documentary. Is there something? that was included in the documentary that you look back on and you're like, wow, that was really cool that we added that in. Cause that wasn't planned at the beginning. Uh, I think, you know what? I mean, I, I think just all of like the home video, like the, the stuff of me really young, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's still emo- really emotional for me to hear my dad's voice. So like, you know, my dad's voice on some of the video early, um, you know, some of that stuff is pretty cool because I hadn't seen a lot of that video in, in a very, very long time. So, to be able to add that that element in and like bring my my dad really to life, um, it's pretty cool. And, and to be honest, like watching the doc and like there's a couple of cutaways where like they cut from him to me, and it's it's crazy how much you know I look like him. You know what I mean? And, mm-hmm. and like my 40 year old self, and you know looking at you know my father back then, it's 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 uh, it's, it's crazy to to be able to see how much we, we actually really look alike. I love seeing you as a father. I love towards the end without giving anything away, you know, you and your wife sitting there watching your son play baseball and you got your folding chair and your cooler and, and you're just like any other dad. But I love the fact that you're an involved dad and, and you can tell that you've got a special relationship with your kids. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I mean, my, my family dynamic here at home is, is very special. Uh, the six of us are very close and um, you know, I'm, I'm very close to my oldest, but, but, but to my other three too, um, you know, so to be able to watch him going through his journey right now and, and, and trying to get further in his baseball career, you know, he's a junior in high school right now. So to be able to, to be on these travel ball teams and go to these different tournaments with him now and actually like be a dad, you know, um, it's fun because being a professional athlete, you know, having kids, your, your wife is basically a single, a single parent, especially during the season. You know, I hadn't, this is the first summer in six years where I got a chance to see my, my son play live, you know, where it wasn't a video or somebody was FaceTiming me or something. So um, it was just, it was, it was cool and very special to be able to spend those moments with him too this summer. And I look forward to that going, you know, even more, you know, going forward. One of the other things I really like about the doc, and this might be a little thing that most people don't notice, but I notice stuff like this. I like that you narrated it. Your story was told by you. You didn't bring in some you know, voice to do it, it was done by you. Was that something that you felt strongly about? You know, that was actually um, a thing that HBO had pitched to me, which, again, we talked about them doing amazing work, amazing work, but, you know, like you said, I don't think it wouldn't have been right if it would have been in somebody else's voice, you know? Um, You know, just because of how personal everything is and, you know, me going, you know, even at the beginning, the very first couple scenes is me, you know, going through a stress test. So, so, you know, the the doc is super, super personal, and, and to, like you said, for me to be able to, to be the voice to narrate it, um, 
you know, just made a lot of sense. And I'm definitely grateful that, that they came up with that idea. As someone who played 19 seasons in Major League Baseball, and, and I see this as getting better in all of the sports leagues, but what can the leagues, the teams, the players' unions do to assist athletes with mental health? You know what? You, I mean, you, you, you said it right. Uh, the teams are getting better. They're actually listening to, you know, the players and, and you know, not just, you know, uh, just sweeping it under the rug. Um, you know, pretty much every team now has a mental mental health, con- you know, conditioning coach um, that you can go to at any time. Um, you know, and, and, you know, like, but I think the biggest thing is that teams are just recognizing it. And you're able to talk and, and you know, have these free conversations in the clubhouse about mental health and about things that you're going through, about personal things that were taboo probably at the beginning, at the beginning of my career. Um, you know, so for me, you know, it being a different big leagues later on in my career definitely helped me out because there's no way early 2000s I'm, you know, I'm able to just basically leave my team, you know, in the playoffs and go to the, you know, go to rehab and not hear it from a few players, you know. Um, there was nothing but love and support from around the league, especially from my team. My clubhouse was, was phenomenal and, and our organization and the, and the Steinbrenner family, but just around the league, across the league, from Big Poppy to, um, I mean, everybody. I mean, there's literally, you know, not, not one person that didn't hit me. I mean, Sean Doolittle. I mean, there were so many different guys that reached out um, and gave me support that probably wouldn't have been the same in the early 2000s. Yeah, and it says a lot about you, too, right? Like, you're playing in New York, which not everyone can play in the pressure-packed Big Apple, and you're pitching in the biggest of games, the World Series games and, you know, league championship games, things like that. You always answered the call, and and don't you think that because of that and because you were so good to other people, they were more understanding when you needed it? I mean, you, you would hope so. But you never know, you know, when, when you're going through struggles like that. Um, especially, like, at, at that time, you know, it being, you know, we, we were literally playing in a wild card game the next night. So, um, you never know. But, I mean, you definitely, I mean, it, 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 you know, you definitely want to be a good teammate, be a good person, treat people right. And, um, you know, just for, for me, I mean, I, I'm just always myself. I think, you know, people are always like, man, you get a break in the media. But, you know, it's not because I'm so honest. It's just because I'm myself. I don't try to make up anything that I'm not. I don't try to do anything that I'm, you know, be anything extra than I'm not. I'm just, you know, myself. And I, you know, I've made a lot of mistakes. I've a lot of times. And, and uh, but I'll, I'll stand here and, and stand in front of you and, and admit my wrongs every time. Yeah. And I think people see that. So I wanted to ask you this. I had John Smoltz on earlier in the year, baseball mm-hmm. hall of famer, 15 and four in the postseason, you were also great in the postseason. You always, you always wanted the ball in the biggest of games. Explain to me that mindset. Cause again, not everyone wants the ball in the big games and you always like wanted the ball. Yeah. Uh, there's a difference between wanting the ball and being able to perform. Um, you know, I, I wanted the ball every time. And, you know, in 2007, um, you know, there was, I had the opportunity to go out and try to, you know, pitch the Cleveland Indians which I think was the best team in the league at that time, to a World Series. Um, if I pitch the way I pitched down the stretch in Milwaukee in 08 and 07 in the playoffs, we win a World Series in Cleveland. Um, so, you know, I, I feel like I had to grow into whatever I became in, in, in New York um, as far as being able to take the ball in big situations. Um, 
you know, th- th- those growing things, you know, those still, there's still times I think about the whole seven playoffs where, you know, I maybe could have made a different pitch or maybe could have calmed myself down or, you know, pitched my way, pitched myself through, through some of those situations. But, um, you know, you always want to, you know, have a guy that wants the ball in those situations, like a, like a Luis Severino or, you know, my here Tanaka, just thinking about some of my recent teammates. Um, but there's a difference between being able, to, being able to go out and perform in those situations, and I had to be able to go out and calm myself down. And not until I got to New York and played on teams where I didn't feel like I had to do too much was I able, able to go out and have those type of performances in the postseason that, um, you know, kind of solidify your legacy, if that makes sense. Smolt said he'd sleep till like 1 p.m. on a game day of a big game. What, 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 Every game, I, I'm just, I, that's crazy because the last time I pitched a, a really big game I'm thinking about was probably game five in 2017 in Cleveland. Um, and I slept till 4 p.m. <laughs> Three, it was 340, 3.45. Like, I stayed up all night. I watched Netflix all night. Um, and, I, and I slept all day. Like, I, I, I woke up. Ate breakfast at like nine, and I woke up at three forty-five. Got on the bus at four, and just went to the park. It was always better if I could just sleep the whole day and not think about it. That's so amazing that you guys both had that in common. And obviously, again, you know, you came through in the big situation. So maybe that's the key. Life, we just all need to sleep more. <laughs> just sleep, just sleep, and don't think about it. But that's why I always felt like I pitched better in day games too, because I didn't have time to think about the game all day. Wake up, you know, early, get to the game, get to the park, do your routine, and, and the game's over before you can even think about it. So, um, you know, I, I always pitched and played and performed better in situations where I didn't have to, to overthink. And, you know, I was always trying to put myself in those situations. And, you know, the older I got, the, the more I realized if I just sleep all day, then I don't have to think about it. <laughs> CC, I love what you're doing post-baseball career. I listen religiously to the R2C2 podcast that you do with Ryan Rucco. Sounds like you guys have such a great time doing that. Podcasting, that seems like something you can do for a long time. It's fun, man. I, um, uh, thank you, by the way, for the listen. But it's, it's fun. I, I really enjoy it. And, you know, obviously, Rucco carries all the weight. He's the, he's the host, and he knows how to pretty much run a show, so... It's just fun to be able to piggyback off of him. And I think the thing about our chemistry and the thing about our show um, is that we have a lot in common, obviously. Me and Ruka are from two completely different worlds. We grew up in two completely different worlds, obviously. Him growing up here on the East Coast in the suburbs and me growing up in the West Coast in the hood. And we have a lot in common. So, you know, that, that makes for great conversation. That makes for great text messaging. And, you know, it just kind of relates to onto our podcast so you know as, as long as i can you know do things that are easy and fun and i can be myself um i'll do them all day i don't ever want to do a job again where i feel like it's work you know um you know i've, I've never i've never felt like i've worked a day in my life and i, and I don't want to feel like that in post-retirement so um you know i just want to keep things fun loose and organic and, and podcast is one of the ways to do that Speaking of fun, I see that you are going to be making your NBA analyst debut this Friday. That's awesome for the Nets game on the Yes Network, right? Yeah, I am. I, I, I always said I'd never put on a suit to call a game, but that was a baseball game. So I'm definitely <laughs> put on a suit to call this basketball game. I'm so excited that KD is back, man. And, you know, we get a chance to watch him up close here in New York and, you know, having my relationship I do with the Yes Network and, being able to get this opportunity, obviously, uh, is a lot of fun, man. I'm, I'm super nervous about it, but 
I'm sure Ruko and, and Sarah take care of me, but um, yeah, this is cool. And this is the stuff I like to do. I, I mean, you know, I, I'm a I'm a baseball player. I was a baseball player, but I'm a huge, huge sports fan. Um, and, and you know, I love the NBA, love the NFL. Obviously, I, I like to watch baseball, but you know, uh, those other two leagues, you know, I, I really, really enjoy being a fan of and doing fantasy and all those type of things. So. Um, yeah, man, I'm, I'm like a real regular, you know, dad, sports fan, all of that stuff. That's awesome. Do you have a team in the NBA that you like? Nah, you know what? Because and, and I always get, I always get a lot of stuff for this because um, I am a big time Raiders fan in the NFL, and I bounce around to whoever's good for the NBA. So <laughs> I, I never because because the Raiders never win, and I always am disappointed in the wintertime. I, I need a winner by the spring, so. I was with the. I, I grew up a Lakers fan. Ran with the Warriors for a little while. I had season tickets there, um, and then I, I'm basically a KD fan at this point. Wherever he goes, I go. So now he's here in New York, and I get a chance to watch him in Brooklyn. So I got my KD jersey, and and now I'm all, I'm all in on the Nets. Yeah, he looked good last night. It's so good to see him healthy again. Yeah, uh, he was. I mean, the thing about it is, like at the end of the season before COVID, he was looking good then in March. So. Like just having this extra time, I mean, he looked he looked back to normal, man. And I think people forget how good this guy is, and you know, people keep calling him the second best player in the East. Um, to Giannis, no disrespect to Giannis, he's a great guy, and I met him here at the stadium a couple times, and he's a phenomenal basketball player. But when KD's on the floor, man, there's there is literally nobody better than him. No, I agree, and KD's got rings too, and. You know, when you get to the playoffs, it's all about getting your own shot. And KD can get his own shot over anyone, and that makes him real dangerous. For sure. I mean, and then you got two of those guys. You got Kyrie that can get his own shot, and you got KD, and you got Karis LeVert coming into his own as a superstar. This could be a very, very exciting season for, for the Nets. I mean, Joe Harris, I mean, you know, uh, DeAndre Jordan, they're set up to win. I mean, the, the only reason they're not getting they, they're not picked to win the East right now is because Katie's coming off the Achilles and Kyrie's coming off the shoulder. But if you look at it on paper, I mean, they're gonna give the Bucks a run for their money in, in in playoffs. I agree. All right, a few more minutes with you. Uh, again, love what you're doing post baseball career. You're doing work with Player Alliance. It's 150 current and former Major League Baseball players that are involved. I love seeing you out there. This has been a big year where people are really looking in the mirror and saying, are we doing what we need to be doing with social justice and, and topics of that nature? But uh, how did you get involved with that organization? Um, you know what? It's just, um, it, was just a, it just started with uh, Edwin Jackson, um, D. Gordon, and Cameron Maven starting a group chat that um, when everything was going on at the, be, you know, at the beginning when the season got shut down and then in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, we thought it'd be cool to do, you know, a video, um, you know, and just, you know, supporting Black Lives Matter and, and everything that was going on. And, and from that video, you know, we were so excited and pumped up that we were all together and, you know, on the same terms and, you know, all on one group chat that we thought it'd be cool to, to start an a organization. Um, and that turned into the Players Alliance. And, and, you know, it's just been a lot of fun to be a part of this thing now. It's only been about six months, and, you know, right now we're on a 33-city tour that started in the Bronx. They just hit. Uh, yesterday they were in Chicago. To, today they're on their way to Milwaukee, um, and it's a coast-to-coast -to -coast tour where we're pulling up in some of the, the, the toughest neighborhoods in the, in the country, and, 
you know, passing out PPE equipment. We're passing out, um, you know, we're done. We're, we're partnering with uh, local food banks um, and passing out food, and and uh, we're passing out baseball equipment um, to get to try to get kids in these neighborhoods to start playing. And you know, we know how expensive baseball is, and you know, if we can, you know, help, you know, some of these kids, you know, get back to to the game. You know, that'd be great. And and the best way to do that is get some of these kids gear. Um, so it's been a lot of fun, and the best thing about the Players Alliance is it's really powered by the players. You know, this tour that we're on right now um, came from money that, you know, guys um, decided to sit out and donate their salaries during Jackie Robinson Day um, during the season. Um, they sat out during the weekend, donated their salaries, were able to raise over a million dollars, and put this tour on. So um, it's just been a lot of fun to be connected to everybody. You know, a lot of us do a lot of work across the country individually, but to be able to collectively come together and put our powers together, I think it's going to be a lot of fun, not only for the black community, but for all communities. You know, every on, on this stop along the way so far, there's been, you know, every community has come out to help, volunteer, come out to receive food, um, to, to, to put in donations. There's, there's been, you know, every race of players been coming out to, to support and, and volunteer too. So, um, you know, this is going to benefit everybody. Well, I tip my cap to you. You're doing some some great work out there. Uh, news that came down yesterday, and the Cleveland Indians announced it today. They are going to drop Indians from their name. You were drafted by Cleveland. Was there ever any talk when you were there about that, or uh, what are your thoughts on this since you played for them? You know what? There was never any talk about that when I played there, but there were always people out, outside of the stadium protesting. Um, you know, and, and I think if it offends one person, then we need to take a look at it. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm all for it. And, and, but like I said, I mean, I, I would always see people out there protesting in front of the stadium. And, you know, so the, the fact that the organization is doing the right thing, taking a look at it and changing the name, um, I'm behind it. I'm behind it 100%. What do you think the name should be? Some people have said the Spiders. That seems to be like a popular one. But it was a, uh, I think that was the name of a team before the Indians, I think. I think you're right. I think the Cleveland Spiders uh, were were the team before the Indians, so that would be cool. The Bisons, maybe. Hmm. Buffalo, they had the Buffalo Bisons. Uh, you know, Cleveland Bisons. Um, I don't know, man. Well, I guarantee you, whatever name you suggest, will hold some weight with that organization. So think of something good. <laughs> All right, last question for you. Uh, in the dock. It was so funny. One of the scenes, they're coming to clean out your locker at Yankee Stadium after you retired. And I live in Portland, Oregon, so I'm in the backyard of Nike and the Jordan brand. And I was like, dang, he's got a load of shoes there that they're taking out. So I got to ask you, what's your favorite Nike or Jordan shoe that you've ever worn? Oh, man. I mean, my favorite shoe by far is a Jordan. And I've been blessed to be able to be with the brand for so long now. Um, that was probably really one of the highlights of my career. But my favorite shoe is 11. Um, the Concord, just a classic, um, you know, black leather, uh, black patent leather with the white. Um, and the funny story about that in 09, um, the Jordan, the brand, they actually sent me a pair of Concords because they thought I was going to make the All-Star team. So I was, gonna, I was supposed to wear them in the All-Star game. I didn't make the All-Star team that year. So they sent me two pairs, and they were like, hey, these are like special shoes, you know. Don't wear them unless you get into the All-Star game. And I was like, all right, cool, send them. I won't wear them. They sent them. The very first start after the All-Star game, I put them on. <laughs> and, and, like, went on a crazy run in the second half. And, 
those are, are what I pitched in down the stretch in, in 09 and in the World Series. So, uh, yeah, by far my favorite shoe was the Concord. Okay, so you're going to not believe this, but I tweeted this out earlier today, so I have proof. The same shoe. I, I, I like the same shoe. It's my favorite shoe. And they had the 25th anniversary edition that came out this year. I don't know if you saw those, but, God, they're, they're a good-looking shoe. It is. It is a good-looking shoe. It's, uh, it, I mean, you know, and, and growing up as a kid, I couldn't afford it. So, um, And I remember when those shoes came out, 96, I was a sophomore in high school, uh, and I wanted those shoes so bad. So to be able to, like, win a championship in Yankee Stadium in the Bronx wearing that as a cleat is, like, the ultimate highlight for me. So, like, being able to, like, have some of these special moments that I've had in my career in Jordans is – you know, 1,000% a super highlight for me. Under the Grapefruit Tree, the CC Sabathia story debuts December 22nd at 9 p.m. Eastern on HBO. It's also going to be available to stream on HBO Max. It is fantastic. I highly recommend it. CC, thanks for taking time to talk to me today, and congrats on the film, and congrats on all your success uh, on the baseball field and off the baseball field. No problem. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Brian Berger here. We've collaborated with our friends at Parish Project to create high-quality sports business radio clothing, including hoodies, long-sleeve t-shirts, and short-sleeve t-shirts. Each item comes in five different colors and a variety of sizes. These items are super comfortable, and you can wear them on Zoom calls, while working out, or when you're lounging around the house. Sports Business Radio has loyal listeners around the world. We'd love for you to post a picture rocking your Sports Business Radio gear. Tag us on Instagram or Twitter if you post. Get your official Sports Business Radio gear by going online to parishproject.com. That's parishproject.com. P-A-R-I-S-H project.com. Well, that's it for this edition of Sports Business Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks to our show staff, Brian Griggs and Josh Blank. And thanks to our partner, Molka Sports, for powering Sports Business Radio. Learn more about them online at molkasports.com. That's M-A-L-K-A sports.com. For Brian Griggs, I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio. This and every SBR podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and your favorite listening app. Follow Sports Business Radio on Facebook, Twitter at SB Radio, Instagram at Sports Business Radio, and online at sportsbusinessradio.com. Sports Business Radio is produced by Brian Griggs and Griggs Productions, griggsproductions.com.